Welcome to this episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEWLP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters, and I have with me Representative Emily Kornheiser from Brattleboro, and we are talking about how things in Montpelier shake out for Wyndham County. Hey there, Emily. Hi, Olga. <laughs> have you um, survived your week? I have survived my week. I've even done a little bit of thriving in my week, I think. Well done. Mm-hmm. And I have to I, say, happy May Day. Very happy May Day. One of the best holidays of the year, I think. Well, and I think one that will go down in history for creating a whole new conversations around work mm-hmm. and benefits and mm-hmm. hazard pay and some of the things we'll be talking about today. Yes, it is a particularly apt May Day between the serious conversations we're having about labor right now in this country and how important this particular spring feels for all of us who are um, emerging or not emerging. And so that combination of both meanings of May Day feels particularly apt right now for me. And I'm feeling this week, um, it's funny, with this, for what I'll call the life cycle of this pandemic, when we first started to go into close down mode, it felt like a lot of things were unpredictable and guidance was changing all the time from the state Mm -hmm. and people were kind of pivoting on a dime left, right and center. Mm-hmm. And then I felt like things settled down a little bit. And mm-hmm. even though the future is uncertain, you kind of knew what day to day was happening, more or less. Um, and now I feel as we're starting to reopen the economy, as the governor says, one spigot turn at a time, um, oh. one turn of the spigot at a time, whatever he says, uh, I'm feeling like I don't even are... quite know what a spigot is, to be honest with you. Oh, it's it's like a faucet. What, how is Usually it outside. from a regular? It's an outside faucet? Usually. Okay. And it's, you know, you can turn it. Oh, like the... the kind that it's like sort of the pipe comes above ground and then there's that. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's usually what I think of as spigots. I'm sure there's Great. listeners right now who are going, no, it's not. But that's <laughs> what I know them as. Um, but I'm feeling like as we're reopening things that things are becoming a little uncertain again. Like I'm, I'm talking to some folks who manage farmer's markets right now. Mm. And one of them, the poor thing, she's like, okay, here's our, here's our customer protocol. And then five minutes later, there's another email like, oh, wait, we just had a call with the state and this has changed. And then there's yeah. another email like, I'm so sorry, but now this has changed. Um, and I think her experience is reflecting what a lot of us are kind of feeling as things are, are opening again. Um, and I remember at the beginning of this, that's sort of what the shutdown felt yeah. like for everyone. And um, so an unnecessary amount of building the plane while flying it. That's a nice way of putting it. And I think we're <laughs> sort of back there. Like, perhaps we could draft the guidance before we release it to the public or before we even tell people that there's going to be guidance. Um, yeah. So many examples of that that I look forward to talking about right now. <laughs> I was like, oh, where else are, Where else is that going to go? Well, there's a couple big things happened at the legislative level this week. One is the Senate passed a hazard pay bill mm-hmm. that is now with the House. And then the House has passed the evic- an eviction stay. Mm-hmm. Um, can we talk about those two things, please? Absolutely. Um, so... 
the Senate did sort of an interesting thing. Com process is very mixed up right now um, for everyone. And having things sort of go through the normal committee process and then finish in one committee and have to bop over to another committee and then bop over the floor, it just, it's not fast enough for the needs of Vermonters. And it's also slower than even its usual crawl because mm. of, you know, virtualness. Um, and so the appropriations committee in the Senate is actually who took up this hazard pay with sort of representatives from their economic development committee, um, which handles labor issues. And so they've put together a package that um, sends out weekly checks, weekly or monthly checks, um, and to folks who are on the front lines as basically like a bonus um, to go on top of their paychecks. Well, and I think it's also, I, I seem to remember Senator Tim Ash talking about this a little bit in one of his Facebook posts he did. And he was saying, you know, we want to acknowledge that uh, some folks, if they have had the unfortunate experience of being unemployed with the $600 bonus check that's coming down from the federal government, mm -hmm. in some cases, people might be making more money than if they'd stayed employed. Um, and these people who are on the front line you know, they're not getting any of, they're not like getting that $600 a week check. And yeah, we want to acknowledge that. It's a really interesting um, non bipartisan, nonpartisan um, move and that there's a lot of different reasons we could be in support of this. And the sort of next conversation we'll have about the eviction stay is very similar. So there's, and the um, just want to make sure we're clear that it passed the Senate and now it's in the House and the House is going to have its conversations about that and then vote it out and then goes on to the governor. So um, to be included in the budget, perhaps. So mm -hmm. that's um, there's still a little bit of time before anything happens there and things could change as mm -hmm. they always do. Yes. So um, there's folks who are really concerned that people who are working are making less than people who are on, a, on unemployment. And there's sort of the conversation about it being a disincentive to work um, hmm. and how maybe we should lower unemployment because of that, right? Um, or we could raise wages because yes, unemployment and, should, not, should not earn you more money than having a job. No, but at the same time, <laughs> no, we should absolutely raise wages, yes. And that's sort of what this is doing. It's a way of raising wages of acknowledging that people who are working right now are often working under more dangerous conditions and deserve hazard pay. And the idea of doing that sort of legislatively and putting it on businesses who might also be struggling with various things right now is both too long-winded an activity um, and too complex. And so this is just like cutting right to the chase and saying like, we're gonna get this done and all the implications around subsidizing that some businesses over other businesses and all of that, like we can just let it sit there and deal with it later. But there are huge implications that we've talked about before, you mm -hmm. know, how Medicaid subsidizes Walmart um, because they don't offer healthcare, that kind of thing. So there's all those implications about how we're subsidizing low wages and what does that mean for businesses that pay low wages. But at the base of it, we're saying to people like you deserve a living wage because you're going out and sacrificing your life and i'm hoping or risking risking your health that's probably a more <laughs> way to say that um and 
what, how do we carry that conversation forward to say like people always deserve this much? Mm-hmm. Um, my son keeps on asking, we've, we're talking about unemployment insurance a lot at dinner lately because um, a huge part of my day is now taken up with helping people navigate the unemployment system um, and the various challenges it's still facing in Vermont. Um, and he keeps on being like, so why does unemployment pay less than when people are working? Because I keep on explaining the calculation and that it's a percentage of your wages. Mm-hmm. And then the $600 is on top of that. Um, and I'm like, well, there's an assumption built into the model that if people are paid the same amount, then they won't ever look for other work. As if, which is a really interesting assumption to build into a model. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't think necessarily how humans do operate. And that we need to be, you know, like living in fear and scrounging in order to motivate us enough to like go off and seek to participate in capitalism again, right? Like mm. it's, it's an interesting piece of the whole pie that the $600 has really upended. Um, mm-hmm. And the argument for why it's upended it is that the $600 is because people aren't sort of leaving work because of normal reasons. The government's forcing them to leave work. Right. And so the $600 makes sense. But why isn't it always there? Why don't people you know, who aren't working have that extra money so that they have the security to look for work in a comprehensive way or perhaps like take the time to seek training to so that their next job can be better or whatever it is. Um, so it's one of those places that we've expanded the conversation that I'm hoping it can stay expanded long enough for us to seek the implications of that expansion. Yes, to, to make some of, um, you know, after any big event and any upheaval, there's always that the new normal that they mm-hmm. talk about. But how can we make this new normal a better new normal <laughs> yes. and a more resilient new normal? Yes. Than, than just going back to normal, normal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's funny. My friends and I were talking the other night over a Zoom dinner. And I was noting how there's this odd disconnect in our economy. How to really make businesses run well. For the most part, you need people. I'll just, journalism. To do journalism well, it's a human resource intensive Mm -hmm. thing, right? And that's true for most businesses. And yet, the place most businesses tend to have the biggest expenses is employees. Mm -hmm. And so quite often, that's where they look to see how they can cut to save money. Mm -hmm. And I just, to me, that's just such a huge disconnect. Because you're trying to save money on the main thing you need, but... And and I think until we kind of shift some of the thoughts around that disconnect, um, I'm not sure a lot of things are going to improve. No, no. And, you know, um, I think on May Day especially, even though on every day, we um, should acknowledge that, you know, the whole economy runs on people selling their labor and then other people selling those people's labor. And unless we're focused on the essential act of selling one's labor and what the implications of that are. I don't think we can get to the core of any of these conversations um, or what building resilient communities could look like. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's also a lot of 
you know, in this time, um, whether it's because of the disconnect around pay and work with essential workers, or because of folks who are now finding themselves with a lot less to do, or folks who realize that they can work entirely from home. I think a lot of these basic assumptions about how work has to be and what's important and what isn't is being questioned. Um, and yeah. One of the things I've noticed coming out of this time is in all the small ways people's creativity is coming to the fore, whether it's in a funny meme that they put up on Facebook or a little video they make or, you know, a new podcast they start or something like that, more cooking with the kids, whatever it is. Um, And I just, I think that's something we should just note that Mm -hmm. when people have time and from Mm -hmm. what I can tell, these folks who are being more creative also have a a base of resources. Mm -hmm. Um, how creative people can get Mm -hmm. and i think that's going to be a really wonderful thing that came out of this pandemic is all that creativity Mm -hmm. and at times innovation Mm -hmm. and i hope we don't forget that because those are the things that can really change the economy hopefully for the better Mm -hmm. and change businesses for the better people bringing more innovation and creativity Mm -hmm. um and i think we should note that it kind of took people having time and resources to bring that creativity to the table. Absolutely. And um, to get back to May Day, um, <laughs> I think is going to you know, be a thing that happens throughout our interview today. Um, the essence of the eight hour workday, it's not just the eight hour workday, it's eight hours for work, eight hours for leisure, eight hours for rest. And even those of us who are still hypothetically in a 40 hour work week, the structure of American life right now does not include eight hours for leisure in there, right? It might be eight hours of work and two hours of commuting and two hours of cleaning and cooking, which is not leisure for many of us, um, right? And so, you know, eight hours of working, eight hours of childcare, three hours of rest, right? So the when we talk about the workday and sort of the, and I, I know many of us are drifting very far from the eight hour workday. Mm-hmm. Uh, I certainly am. And I know most people I know are. And I know that many people have two like paid eight hour workday gigs even in a day. But when we lose track, even within that framework of the eight hour workday, that there's also the need for the eight hours of leisure and the eight hours of rest if we want to have resilient, connected, sustained communities. And that was the vision of the labor movement. It wasn't just this one piece of it. It was those three connected pieces Mm -hmm. in order to build a life. Um, I was looking for, I've been looking for poetry all week for May Day because I'm doing the devotional in the state house today, um, which is a very fun little creative piece of my week actually is to be able to dive dive into this poetry in the midst of my work. And um, I was listening to Bread and Roses Um, which is sort of an old anthem from International Women's Mm -hmm. Day and from the labor movement. And just the idea of bread and roses too, and not losing track of of the end roses too, which I think we're really um, apt to do. And I Mm -hmm. sort of put that in the category of the rest and the leisure. Mm -hmm. And that leisure time, I think is the time that when we have it, we participate more in our community square or in town meeting or in, you know, watching the proceedings of the legislature and having a conversation with 
um, about politics with our neighbors and whatever that is. Um, mm -hmm. That's part of that leisure time that we yeah. have really lost. I often have mixed feelings about uh, the advice. Writers get this a lot or people with a side hustle that, well, if you want to do your side hustle um, or write your novel or paint your paintings or whatever it is you do, um, you need to get up at 5 a.m. so you can get it in before your work day. But it's it's. And I get it because this is something you do for yourself and so you need to make time for it. But this sense of, I don't know, my I have a conflict around it that um, you're taking from what could be family time or community time mm -hmm. to do, to fit something in that feeds you around something that may be not feeding you. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm just often conflicted around that advice. I don't have a solution for it but it just shows me that something might not be working in in our system if that's the only option people have is to get less sleep yeah is to do anything meaningful at the margins of their day rather mm -hmm. than um at the center of their day perfect you know yes. we see um in the retail industries the most but in a lot of service industries there's language in sort of hr policies around um folks who are not being sort of efficient every moment in their workday, that's called time theft. As if you are stealing your time, your own personal time from your employer, right? Um, that's, it's, it's still your time. It's mm -hmm. always your time. You can't. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't belong to anybody else, really. No one else. No <laughs> one else. Um, and so, yeah, that's really exciting. Um, that I feel like in this time, we are naming those things more. We're naming what our time is for, we're naming what our connections are for, and we're naming the value of work and the need for work to be compensated. And so mm -hmm. um, similarly, the value of home, this week in the legislature, um, we are working on a stay in the eviction, stay on evictions in the house. Um, we know we've talked about this, I think maybe a couple of weeks ago mm -hmm. on the show. And that the court system had already said um, that they were not going to process any evictions. Mm -hmm. But that was is inconsistent from county to county, which is incredibly confusing. Hmm. Um, and also would like to sort of preempt it before it gets to court. Right. And end it there. So this legislation um, puts a stay on evictions through the period of the emergency order and then for a period of days afterwards. Mm -hmm. And similar to hazard pay, there's a bunch of different reasons why people can support this. So there's the humane reason that everyone needs a home, mm -hmm. right? And everyone deserves a home and everyone has a right to a home and safety and security, um, particularly in stressful times, but all the time, right? Mm -hmm. um, Actually, and then you tend to cut down on the stressful times if people have that basic yeah. security of shelter. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and then there's the sort of public health reason, right? The public health implications that in a time where everyone should be sheltering in place for the public health, we don't want anyone who has no place to shelter in, right? Yep. And so that's really important too. Um, and this stay is not just, it's on evictions, but it's also on, um, 
whatever the other word is for the thing that happens to homeowners. Oh, foreclosures. Foreclosures, yes. It's also a stand foreclosures. Um, so if, you know, tenants aren't paying rent to a landlord and that landlord then in turn cannot pay the mortgage, the building cannot be foreclosed on either. Mm-hmm. So there's time for everyone to make good on what's happening. And so this is a really important emergency order. I'm really happy that we passed it. I think it's really important. Um, and it passed, there was a fairly heated debate, but not as much as I thought we would have. And a number of Republicans even voted for it, which really speaks to sort of in these times, how all of the essential struggles of capitalism are highlighted. And during this time, we can all sort of get into agreement about how cruel it all is, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So, and how can we carry that knowledge that we all have of the cruelty into the future? Mm -hmm. So it passed and it's great. And then I'm curious about what the next steps are. So, right? Yes. And actually we have to go hold those next steps because we have to hear from some of our underwriters and we shall be back in a moment to talk about next steps and future and why it's important that people have housing. We'll be right back. Happy Hour here on WBEWLP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters, and welcome, Representative Emily Kornheiser from Brattleboro. We are talking about evictions and the stay of evictions and legislation that just passed, if you are just joining us. And so the House and the Senate have both passed this stay of evictions and stay of foreclosures. Mm-hmm. Um what is next, though, for housing? Because, you know, I know one thing that that local organizations like Groundworks struggle with is that it's less expensive to keep someone housed rather than trying to rehouse them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for people who have been unhoused for a long time, it, it just takes that much more energy, resources and kind of rebuilding of of social collateral for lack Mm -hmm. of a better term, to to get them back into housing. And then, of course, as we know, uh, a lot of Vermont has a very low vacancy rate that, again, can make the housing market really tight. So what's next? Is the legislature have any lessons learned here? Are there new, is there new legislation in the works? I mean, what do you think, Emily? So that was my, um, that was my question on the floor. Uh, when we were debating this. And so once someone has an eviction, landlords have the right to discriminate against them about renting again. Um, Hmm. And there's some sense there. And yet it means that once someone's been evicted in our tight rental market, as you said, it's virtually impossible to get into a new unit, even if you have all the money in the world or also a social worker backing you up, or also an organization saying that they'll pay your background if you have any, or whatever it is. Um, Even if someone's buying down your risk, both socially and financially, it's still very hard to find a place if you have an eviction on your record. Because our rental market is so tight, 
landlords rent to whoever the best candidate is, which is likely someone without an eviction record. There's also the, um, during the best of times, which are not very good times for people who are um, sort of at a high housing risk, but might be housed. Um, you know, we have the sort of metaphor we've been carrying around about flattening the curve, right? Mm -hmm. And during regular times, it's sort of a steady curve around people who need housing resources. And we have a few different funds available that help people stay housed. Um, and then we have a lot more money around getting people back in housing. And so during normal times, the system barely works and doesn't really work, right? I'm really concerned that if we have this stay on evictions, we'll have five months, four months of evictions that are building up. Hmm. Um, and added to that, a much higher need time because the economy is on hold. That's sort of a polite way of saying what's happening. Um, and so people aren't working and their payments, even if they're unemployed and eligible for unemployment, their payments are delayed for various reasons. Um, one of them being that most of our benefit systems are designed around keeping benefits from people rather than providing benefits to people. And so we have a buildup of need, even if the curve was, you know, so even if we didn't have a stay on evictions, we would see a huge spike in need, right? Mm. And then we're flattening that curve, but not doing anything about what's happening under the curve. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm terrified of is that on the other side of this, we're going to see a spike so high in evictions and our system, which can barely handle it under the best of times, is not going to be gaining any extra resources to handle that spike. Mm -hmm. And so want it to be really clear with my colleagues in the legislature and um, in the conversations that I'm having around, you know, social services in Brattleboro, what are we doing to prepare for that spike? Because we answer, have then? to do something and people are working on it. Um, <laughs> and I'm trying to have some really um, serious strategy conversations with providers down here to make sure that whatever solution is dreamed up in the legislature is really going to match the particular configuration of community organizations that we have in Brattleboro, which might be different than, say, how the community organizations come together in Chittenden or Bennington mm -hmm. County. Um, and so then there's a second wave that's sort of similar to the eviction wave of all of the people that we have safely housed in motels. Right. And so for the first time, probably since we had like four farms, and we can talk about poor farms another day, maybe when we get back to a eugenics conversation, that would be helpful. Mm -hmm. paired together. Um, we have everyone who is experiencing housing instability, having like their own private space and bed to sleep in every night mm -hmm. in our area. And so what happens from there? Do we yeah. just kick everyone out of the motels? Do we, this is our big chance to move people into something more stable. What are we going to do with that? Where's the funding for that? Where are the resources for that? Um, we have all these vacant Airbnb units mm -hmm. because Airbnb has been shut down. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's our opportunity. I don't know. Um, and so, yeah, we really need to figure that out. And this is such an incredible moment of opportunity to figure that out. Um, 
one more parallel that I want to draw um, to when at the beginning we were talking about farmers markets and you know guidance that's ever changing. Mm -hmm. um, the guidance to community organizations around these motel stays is through May fifteenth. Ah, okay. Which is coming up really, really, really soon, right? Yeah, it, it has the, felt like a long way away, but yeah, it's not. <laughs> so, are you trying to make a plan for like where people are going to live after that? No, we are. Mm -hmm. That's two weeks away, and so the Agency of Human Services has been clear. Um, clear has said that that will be extended, but that's all we know. We don't know how long it will be extended. Well, and so and that's another some guidance, not enough guidance, what happens next. Um, and we're seeing that in a lot of places. Well, and there's, there's also that interesting in regards to the hotels, mm -hmm. there's an interesting intersection between public and private. Mm -hmm. You know, these are private businesses, mm -hmm. some of which are probably owned by companies not based in Vermont. So mm -hmm. how much power does the state of Vermont have? to say you're going to house people beyond the emergency declaration or, or whatever. That's well, they're all getting paid for it. Okay. That doesn't mean they're getting paid what they want to get. Oh, no, it doesn't. But it's actually, it's sort of a fascinating thing, at least in Wyndham County. And I don't know if this is true in other counties, but as our tourism industry has shifted and changed, we have a lot of motels in our area that make all of their money off of people who are in sort of long-term living situations rather oh, than um, as tourism motels. And so we have a big divide in our area between the motels that are for people to live in and the motels that are for tourists. And the tourist motels don't tend to rent to the people who live in them. Interesting. And so there's, yeah. And there's like a whole, there's a whole like, there's a whole universe there that might be fun to talk about another time. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Oh, definitely yeah. want to hear more about this. Yeah. <laughs> as, as things shift, mm -hmm. people get creative. Mm -hmm. um, so bef before we move on, because we wanted to talk about the budget quickly, mm -hmm. um, anything else around evictions? Oh, actually, I want to ask this around evictions. Mm -hmm. So if you are someone right now who either has received an eviction notice, is afraid you're going to receive one, or you're a homeowner with a mortgage mm -hmm. and you're concerned about foreclosures. Mm -hmm. uh, is there anything right now you need to do? Any state agencies you need to contact? Like, what's, what's the, the deal? There's nothing you have to do. That's the situation with the stay. You will not be foreclosed upon. You will not be evicted. However... There is this endpoint that I am so worried about. And so doing some proactive planning around that endpoint is in everyone's best interest. So if you are a renter talking to your landlord to work something out about like clear communication, where you see money coming from, when you don't see money coming, what your plans are. Um, seeking social services support. Um, if you're not receiving if you think you're eligible for unemployment and you still aren't receiving unemployment benefits, being in touch with your legislator or with the Department of Labor to figure out what's going on. Um, acknowledging that being in touch with the Department of Labor is very difficult right now. So feel free to be in touch with your legislator who might help you with that. Um, 
And then on the other side, for folks who own property, they should be in touch with their bankers. And if they have a few properties, they should look to see if they're eligible for, say, a small business loan or something like that um, through the SBA. And so really, like, this is just a pause to put a cap on something that if we are not doing the work while there's a pause on it, we will have an explosion on the mm -hmm. other side of it. And so, yes, do all the things that you would normally do if you were facing an eviction, but just know that you have more time to do them. And what about fees and penalties? Um, that is supposed to be resolved upon third reading, and I'm looking forward to finding out what's happening with fees and penalties. Okay. Um, it was a fascinating conversation, actually, because when the committee heard testimony, no one brought up fees and penalties because the folks who are testifying on behalf of the Landlords Association just thought that no one would put fees or penalties during this time. Um, but it turns out that people are. Um, not a surprise to me, clearly from your face, not a surprise to you, Olga. And <laughs> banks are still putting fees and penalties, right? right. Like, you know, Wells Fargo is not pausing on fees and penalties to folks who have mortgages either. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so that's supposed to be resolved on third reading, and I'll report back next week. I was listening to the reason for the facial expressions is I was listening to a piece on NPR mm -hmm. yesterday, and they interviewed a woman, I believe, in Ohio. So, you know, a different structure than we have in Vermont. But she was saying that her management group for where she rents charges, I think it's a $10 a day fee. Mm -hmm for for being late and mm -hmm. that fee kicks in if you're three days late on your rent mm -hmm. and i was just amazed because three days the bank could have delayed your check yeah it could be for three days like mm -hmm. oh my gosh and 10 doesn't sound like much but in a week that's 70 bucks so Vermont already has a little bit of tenant law that I am not as familiar with as I should be, mm -hmm. but around fees and penalties. And the way a lot of folks get around that is they say that your rent, you get a um, discount on your rent if you pay in time. Have you ever had a, okay, I've had a few rental contracts that read like this. You get a discount on your rent if you pay on time but if you are three days late, et cetera, then this is the full rent that you will then pay at that point. Um, and so, and then I'm not sure what fees and penalties happen after that. And I will, again, learn more about this for next week. Looking forward to hearing about that because those mm -hmm. fees and penalties, they can be slippery little buggers. Oh my goodness, yes. Mm -hmm. um, so what's happening with the budget? Because technically, do we have a budget for fiscal year? 21? Oh, there's a lot of places we don't have budgets for fiscal year 21. So Most places, actually. State does not have a budget for fiscal year 21. The school district, Wyndham Southeast, does not have a budget for fiscal year 21. It's one of about 12 other districts around the state that don't have one. Um, Springfield is another. Mm -hmm. And um, what's the... It's not called Wyndham Northwest. What's it called? Wyndham Central. Is it Wyndham Central? Yes. They do not have one. Um, and then other ones around the state, South Burlington, a few others. And then Brattleboro's town is, I believe, the only town in the state that does not yet have a budget. And so in a time of much instability, there is more instability. 
So I'm going to talk through a few of those things, if that's okay, okay with you, Olga. Perfect. Bring it on. Okay. So the town does not have a budget because we do not yet have town meeting. And our town meeting is much later than other town meetings because we have special town meeting and we vote about who goes to representative town meeting on town meeting day. And so everything is later and all the warnings and all of those things that Brattleboro voters might be aware of. But mm -hmm. if anyone else in you know, the county is listening, that's the strange special thing that Brattleboro does with representative town meeting. Mm -hmm. And so it meant that we were, had not been able to vote on our budget yet. And the way ta town tax structures work, um, towns set a tax rate at a certain number of days after the budget is set. That's how the language in the charter works. Right. Um, so without a budget, no tax rate can be set. And there's no default situation for that mm -hmm. in um, the charter. And so we're working on legislation um, yesterday, actually, I was working on legislation to make sure that the town um, can have and set a budget. So in other words, it sounds like it's um, similar. So school districts, if they don't have mm -hmm. a budget by the time the new fiscal year starts, they can use what is something like 87% of the previous fiscal year's budget as mm -hmm. a starting point. Yes. Until they so do they get a budget. default to an 87% budget. And that's right. in statute, which is very different from the town situation. So school districts get to default to the 87%, which is terrible for school districts. But in town statute, there's no default rate at all. There's right. nothing. So is that what you're creating in, in statute right now? or In statute right now for the town, we are saying that the town can set a tax rate as it sees fit oh, okay. just for this fiscal year during the pandemic. And it might be the fiscal year and it might be the calendar year. And there's various reasons back and forth for those that I don't think would be very interesting to most anyone. Um, so that's what we're doing. And it's um, it's a very narrow fix because it's just for Brattleboro because Brattleboro is the only town that does not have this. Mm -hmm. And it's not setting, um, it will likely just be in session law or and it's very limited to the period of the pandemic. So there aren't really big implications of it for other areas. And so likely that can be sort of a tidy-ish fix. And mm -hmm. that was originally an amendment on another law um, that, that it was originally an amendment that I was adding to another piece of statute that allows towns to change fee structures um, around town taxes. So would give town, normally a town, if it wants to change um, fines and fees for late payment of taxes, needs to change that in their charter. Mm -hmm. um, and this is allowing whatever the governing body, body of that community is to change the fines and fees structure for late payment. And, and what is the hope there that they will do away with fees and fines or? Communities asked for this because they're really concerned about people, um, people who are struggling right now and just wanted some flexibility to do what they think is best. Mm -hmm. What's important to remember though, is that just because a town is deciding to forgive taxes to an individual, that town is still liable to pay those taxes to its school district or to the state. Mm -hmm. um, and so some towns might do it, some towns might not do it. It just gives the flexibility to the towns because they asked for it. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and normally they have that flexibility, but it's a much more um, lengthy process. And okay. so these are sort of special times. And it was saying, here's some flexibility in these special times if you want to use it. Mm -hmm. 
How are the budget discussions going right now in the legislature? I mean, there's there's so many moving parts. I think we've pretty much all just come to terms with the fact that there will be shortfalls. Um, how are those conversations going? What are some of the priorities for getting funding to or from places? Yeah. Um, the first priority, so everything is unknown. We know there's a significant shortfall. We know especially about the significant shortfall in the ED fund. Mm-hmm. Um, and because sales tax and meals and rooms tax are so down um, for fairly obvious reasons. Um, and so we know the shortfall there. We know that there's a significant shortfall um, in the general fund, but the exact extent of that is really unclear to us right now. Um, and so we got some projections from JFO. They're very provisional provisional and it's not a consensus estimate. So we get a consensus estimate a few times a year and that's a collaboration between legislative staff essentially and the administrative staff. And they both sort of develop budgets and then come together and say it's a consensus budget and that's what we operate from. Mm -hmm. Um, There are some states that don't do that and basically the legislature operates with one set of numbers and the administration operates with another set of numbers and everyone's living in a totally different parallel reality. And so this oh, is a, what could possibly go wrong? I know. So this is a very cool thing that, that Vermont does. But the administration really wants more time to get a sense of what the projection should look like um, because so much is unknown. Mm-hmm. And the legislature really needs to be starting to develop um, something right now. Normally, we would be passing our budgets, this, the budget this week and passing the yield bill this week. So the Ed Fund is the most immediate. We're thinking right now that for um, we'll likely pass a temporary budget and then come back in August when we have a better sense of numbers to pass mm-hmm. final budgets. Mm-hmm. But the yield bill, um, which is the Ed Fund, which is sort of the, the bill that sets property taxes from the Ed Fund that communities need so that towns can send out tax bills needs to happen sooner than that. I am so impressed. I was like, how is she going to explain the yield bill? Folks, I hope you appreciate how much Emily just boiled down what is a very complicated mathematical <laughs> part of the... It's all quite new to me. And so, um, yeah, thank you. You're welcome. I've been asking some questions at committee that I'm like, is this too silly a question? I don't know what your acronym means. Um, oh, when it comes to the Ed Fund, there are no silly questions because okay. it's very complex. So anyway, there's this huge pot of money that is used for, that's the education fund. And that pot of money is made out of property taxes and meals and rooms tax and sales tax and a few other things that we're not going to talk about. And so whatever we have a sense in um, January, we get a sort of a projection of what school budgets will look like. And they tend to be very, very close to that. And so we have most of the school budgets right now. Um, we're about to get sort of the final school budgets. I don't want to miss this part because this is important. So we are also debating how schools, how school districts that don't have budgets will be able to set their budgets. Mm-hmm. And so the Senate passed a bill that just gave all towns that didn't have a school budget a 4% inflator on their last year, which is better than the 87%, but still really difficult because some, because of per pupil spending stuff, like small districts, um, 
that might be very might, might be too much money for them or might be nowhere near enough money for them and larger districts it just it didn't meet the particular needs of each community and some communities had had their budgets voted down and that's why they don't have a budget other communities like ours just had never been able to vote on their budget and tends to always pass budgets so um it wasn't a specific enough solution and so when we tried to find a more specific solution we were like getting mired in the details and like nothing good ever happens when the legislature tries to get mired in the details like that's how you wind up with act 46. so when <laughs> um, so when so what we're working on now in the education committee sort of between the ways and means committee and the education committee is allowing the governing body of the school district which is the school board to set the budget that they see fit for next year the whatever the budget is basically that was warned already mm -hmm. um and so that they and if voters, that's a way to be closest to the voters. If voters don't like that, then the voters can vote that school board out next year. Um, and it creates some equity between the schools districts that already voted and the schools that haven't voted yet, because the ones that haven't voted yet, if they tried to vote now under very different economic times, that would be very confusing and would create a real inequity between the communities that the children in the communities that voted and the children in the communities that haven't voted. Um, and so really, because we have in our state constitution, this equal opportunity for children, we really needed to make sure that we're finding an equitable solution for ed funding in this particular situation. So we have a very close estimate of what all the school budgets will be. And we total all that up. And then we see how much money is in the ed fund from the things that are not property taxes, meaning meals and rooms and sales taxes, basically. And then we see what's missing. And that pot of money that's missing to between all of the budgets all added together and what money is already in the ed fund is what becomes the yield bill. Mm -hmm. And that is the percentage from each household that we need to collect in property taxes to meet those school budgets. Mm -hmm. The problem, and there's a big one, is that because there's so little meals and rooms taxes and sales taxes in that pot right now, partly because of delayed filing deadlines and partly because, you know, not a lot of restaurant happening right now. Um, the, that pot of money is very small and the pot of money that we need is very large, much too large of an increase in property taxes for any Vermonter to bear, mm -hmm. essentially. Yeah. Um, and so we're looking at weird solutions to fill that missing pot many of the weird solutions should i pause no i'm with okay. you I'd, okay. listeners if you need to pause you can hit pause <laughs> on youtube or soundcloud right now <laughs> if you're if your brain is exploding and you need to simmer down a little bit because okay. ed funding can do that to people um you so, may do that but we're going to keep going go ahead okay. emily <laughs> thank you Olga. um and so What's the added complication of this is the source we have for money right now is federal money. And that's the CARES Act and some other federal legislation that's come through. But all of that federal legislation and of which there is billions of dollars, mm -hmm. right? It's very exciting. It's like the biggest, I don't like calling it a stimulus, but it's really like the biggest tranche of federal spending we've seen since the New Deal, like lots of potential there. All of that is being very clearly demarcated as not to replace lost revenue. 
See, that doesn't make sense to me. No. And we've had many conversations with our federal delegation about how useless that is. Good. And so we are figuring out all these different ways we can say, okay, this isn't replacing lost revenue. We can't just put it into the ed fund and say like, okay, great. Now property taxes aren't like totally out of control. Um, And so we're looking at all these different, really interesting working arounds. Like, can we send the money directly to school districts? and then reduce the amount that's being asked of the ed fund in school budgets, right? right? It's an offset of a school budget. Or can we take it all, send it directly to taxpayers and say, here's the money to pay your taxes mm-hmm. with, which are now more than they normally would be. Mm-hmm. Send it back to us all. Or can we send it to towns and have towns then create an offset in their tax payments, which is sort of similar to how the homestead um, the property adjustment from homesteads works. Right, right, so okay. Looks sort of like the property adjustment for homesteads, but that like puts a lot of work on the towns mm-hmm. who don't necessarily all have that capacity to do that, the large, smaller towns. So those are all the different things we're playing with. Um, and I'm hoping this weekend to have some more time to play with like, what are other things we could throw into that pot um, to mean that to fill it up um, and really rethink how we pay for education. Like, is this an opportunity to rethink how we pay for education? Mm-hmm. If we're already messing with all the ways that students are paid for, maybe this is the big chance to fix the student waiting that we talked about. Way back when that most people have probably forgotten about, even though it was huge at the time. Yeah. <laughs> we, I have not forgotten about it. And I will um, say that I think most of the Wyndham County delegation has certainly not forgotten about the student waiting stuff. I'm sure. So when you've talked to the federal delegation Mm -hmm. to say this makes no sense that we couldn't use some of the stimulus CARES Act money for making up lost revenue, because to me, that seems kind of common sense-ish. What's the answer been? So I personally have not spoken to the federal delegation. Emily? Sorry. (laughs) Um, the powers that be Mm -hmm. so like house leadership senate leadership um, appropriations have talked to the federal delegation um and they're saying that they understand and they're doing the best they can um you know similar to like why did all of the money dry up for the paycheck protection paycheck protection or why did it all go to large corporations instead of small businesses like a lot of republicans in that legislature um (laughs) says the democratic representative from Brattleboro. Yeah. So it's hard for us to remember that like our congressional delegation is operating in such a totally different environment than, you know, Washington is for many reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've seen a lot of coverage about, um, you know, the Democrats that spend, the Democratic states that spend shouldn't be able to use federal money to fix that. And like, that just seems like weird talking points. I don't know if that's what anyone actually believes, mm-hmm. but I'm really terrified. I'm terrified that um, this is just really like another very preemptive, purposeful nail in the coffin of governance um, and of good government and like sort of a really a final push for austerity. Mm. And I want to be incredibly careful that as Vermonters and in the Vermont legislature, we do not allow ourselves to be caught up in that. 
mm-hmm. that we are in a time where communities need us and need government more than they have in decades. And so we need to find a way to fully fund that government and fully fund communities so that people can get through this and come out the other side better and more resilient than they were before. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. And I think um, we have pretty much figured out from the twenty, the 2008 Great Recession that austerity doesn't necessarily work. No, no, it doesn't work for anyone, um, except for, you know, the top 1%. And we, you know, we've seen the stock market rise to <coughs> certain points of this, even while unemployment, you know, was rising as well. Like, that's the disconnect between the the economy and the health of the economy and the health of the household is just so stark right now um and austerity measures is such a huge part of that yes well and i would i would argue that vermont lifestyle so often we already have an austerity mindset Mm -hmm. um and where has that gotten us Mm -hmm. in some ways it's gotten us through some lean times Mm -hmm. which is good but there's a difference between getting through lean times and um cutting yourself off at the knees before you even get started. Absolutely. So we are out of time, Emily. Before we go, is there anything you wanted to to throw out there for people to pay attention to? I just want to remind people that um, I'm here, the other legislators are here. And so if folks are finding themselves in a new situation that they don't know how to navigate, to please reach out, whether that's accessing food stamps or trying to figure out how to talk to your banking institution or trying to get through with unemployment benefits. Um, I'm here and there are a lot of people here who are really ready to help. And, and I hope um, for everyone who is, who is trying to work through some of these systems who maybe never has, mm-hmm. um, in a way your voice is really valuable right now because there's a lot of people who live with these systems who have mm-hmm. just because they've had to adjusted to them Mm -hmm. and and so your fresh experience of what it's like to move through these systems could be really valuable in improving them so i hope and so if you're outraged if you're frustrated let your voice be heard tell your legislator also call the governor's office if it's like this form is archaic and makes no sense and has nothing to do with my life say that yeah this we we can really have an opportunity to change a lot of things for the better and change i think a lot of the narratives that we tell about who has money who doesn't who has a job who doesn't and why that is um which could be very valuable as well to policy making in the future so true thank you so as always, this is the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEWLP Brattleboro, your community radio station. We are live on the radio 2 p.m. every Friday, even though it's a little early for drinking. Um, <laughs> but that doesn't stop us. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you can also find us on the Vermontitude Facebook page, the Vermontitude SoundCloud page, and Emily Kornheiser's YouTube channel and BCTV, Brattleboro Community Television as well. Thank you for joining us, everyone. 
Thank you, Emily. See you next week. Thank you, Olga. Mm-hmm.